Romans chapter 1. I want to read again the entirety of the words of greeting and then come up to, I guess, the verses of introduction is what we approach today. But uh, familiar words, the words as we've seen and we'll comment on again today that are really, well, I can borrow the line of R.L. Dabney, but he was speaking about old hymns and he wrote that in the 1860s, so put that one together. But he used the phrase, so freighted with compact and luminous truth. Well, if that can be true of a hymn of human composure, well, of course, it is infinitely more true of the scriptures. And Paul frequently packs a lot of truth into his introductions. Found years ago, I think it was David Hamilton that took the the uh, task I suggested in a morning service of diagramming the opening sentence of Ephesians. Well, it might be a task to look at this one or those compiled together here in Romans 1. But let us read together again these important and familiar words. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Well, in the reading in verse 17, trusting again the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. Let's do bow our heads and our hearts together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come trust with some of the 
thoughtful meditations on the psalms and hymns we have lifted together. That you might be our vision. We might be taken up from the things of this world, these temporal things that are touched by the curse of sin, and that we might have our focus. Lord, not even to be, as it were, so much in our inheritance of stuff. Heaven, doubtless, as we see little pieces and descriptions of that eternal city in your word will be filled indeed with wonders but it is the wonder of your presence the lamb is the light of that city and so help us to look forward to that day by learning more of you in this day prosper your word again Lord let us be persuaded afresh of the importance of the moments we spend together under your word worshiping you and singing your praise and we ask these things in Jesus precious name Amen when we introduced the book of Romans several weeks ago now We considered it as a book being written by an unlikely writer to an unexpected recipient with an unusual message. I was encouraged actually this week that one of the commentators I'm reading uh, used the word unusual with reference to the gospel as he was dealing with one of the texts we look at today. But on the surface we can almost consider, if you will, in thinking of that unusual message thinking of this book and who wrote it and to whom it's written. I just had the thought, think of being a first century Jew and your city is under Roman occupation. This current, this latest, largest, most powerful, most expansive of the Gentile empires that have now for four centuries had sway greater than that, had sway over your kingdom. We read of the Jews and we can almost see the little smile in Pilate's face when in their hatred of Christ, the Jews, how did they even bite their tongues to say we have no king but Caesar? But to consider a book written to the Romans... This book of a gospel, of good news that belongs to them and the Romans alike. I was reminded of a writer from some years ago. I can't actually remember now who it was, but I know what group he belonged to. Those lights in that free church of Scotland in the middle and late 1800s. Perhaps it was Hugh Martin, perhaps, and probably it was James Buchanan. But he spoke of the Jews in the Old Testament and their reluctance at times to consider the Gentiles and to think about the the Gentiles being brought in 
And he said if they were to understand that their own standing with God, their own acceptance in the sight of God was through a gospel of grace, that their standing, their approval was not one of merit, it was not one of national ethnic descent, it was purely one of grace. And that's all through their scriptures. It wasn't through Paul that God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were better or larger or greater than any other people. I chose you because I chose you. That's not New Testament revelation. That's Old Testament revelation. It's the same gospel of grace. And again, this unnamed writer, I feebly remember, but what a powerful point for them to understand if they could and would understand their position was one of grace. And not only would there be no barrier to their welcoming and seeing Gentiles accepted on the same terms, but they would rejoice in it. Well, here's a book written, I say, by an unlikely writer, Saul of Tarsus. To unexpected recipients, Romans. And with that unusual message, and unusual only as we will perhaps see later on today, because it isn't the normal thought of the flesh, it isn't the normal thinking even of the religious flesh. It is the good news of grace that is revealed from a sovereign and gracious God. So we've been looking at so far the greeting uh, in this epistle. We've come in some ways to the verses today that would serve as the introduction, and then we've even used the phrase, as others do, the thesis statement of this very purposeful, organized epistle that Paul is writing. But as we've looked at this greeting and approached it, we've seen Paul is characteristically overflowing with thought and with content as he simply greets his readers. The from Paul part of these verses was packed with pregnant phrases about the person and work of Christ in the Gospel. The to the Romans part of these verses was filled with deep content about the experience and the results of conversion in the lives of God's people. And now as Paul introduces or approaches his introduction to the letter and the statement of his thesis, and this really I suggest begins here in verse 14, let us read together again these words. Paul says, I'm debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And really it's following on from that statement that his introduction and his, his thesis, his theme are stated. That gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There Paul is, I say, clearly introducing his theme. But what I want to focus on today is what closes out his greeting and begins his introduction to that theme, 
are three statements that Paul makes, three strong statements of personal affirmation with regard to his attitudes toward this gospel. Now, it might be easy for us to look at these statements and consider them and see them as having a particular connection with him and with his attitude and mindset as he is a called, ordained apostle to share the gospel. But we can also clearly see, I believe, that these are the very same attitudes that should belong to each of us as believers in Jesus Christ. And I'm referring here to the three statements that he makes from verse 14 to verse 16. I am debtor, I am ready, and I'm not ashamed. This is Paul's attitude toward his gospel, toward God's gospel. I am debtor, I'm ready, and I'm not ashamed. So I want simply to look at these affirmations today. Because as I said, Paul's attitude toward the gospel is exactly the attitude that each of us should possess. Firstly, Paul says, I am debtor. This is a striking statement. It's one that's out of line with our natural fleshly thinking, but it is one that is perfectly in line with what we so often speak of here under the title gospel thinking. I'm debtor. I want to look first though at those to whom he references this. He says, I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. I don't want to spend a lot of time here and the commentators working through the different nuances while the conclusion of the whole thing is basically in this set of two couplets, Paul's including everybody. But how he phrases it catches our attention. He phrases it with purpose. I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now Greeks is a term that's used in the New Testament in different ways. Sometimes it basically is a synonym for the word Gentile. Uh, it's, and he says that in, really in that way later in his thesis. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. Jews and non-Jews, as it were. The Greek culture had permeated the ancient world. Even in the Roman Empire, Greek culture was prevalent. The Greek language was the common language of the collected nations. It's interesting that our New Testament was Greek tongue. And so, in a sense, the word can mean non-Jews. It just means Gentiles. There's another way in which it's used, and it's in contrast, and perhaps that's the shade of meaning that's here, because in this couplet, the first one, he says to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, barbarians is a word that evolved into meaning uncultured people. I mean, people who bad table manners and just downhill from there, barbarians. But originally it wasn't so much a derogatory term as it was referencing people that didn't know and use the local language. Um, you know, you listen to them talk and just kind of like, bar, 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 what are they saying? I don't, I don't get it. He's a barbarian. But 
in that sense then, you've got Greeks in contrast to non-Greeks. In some ways, perhaps, there's, a, there's an ethnic or a national focus here. The Paul I'm a debtor to people of every nation, of every group. And then he brings along another little couplet, both to the wise and to the unwise. And here, Paul is singling out here people, we might say, a close perhaps proximity would be to the educated and to the uneducated. Paul said, I'm not just going to the elite, to those at Athens or Mars Hill that have all their philosophical degrees and whatever, and ignoring the rank and file, ignoring the slave. So whether it's with national background or cultural or educational upbringing, Paul said it doesn't matter. I'm a debtor to all of them. And so this debt that Paul speaks of is quite universal. He's not discharging this with just some people. He's not picking and choosing who he feels indebted to. There's not a man that would come across Paul's path that he couldn't look at him and say, I'm your debtor. So these are those to whom he sees himself indebted. But now we come just to the phrase itself, I am debtor. We can become indebted in two different ways. We can become indebted by borrowing from someone or some gracious institution that only wants 17.5% or whatever else back. And the longer you take to pay, the better. You know, there's this minimum payment. You can do that. And you can just keep paying forever. Well, I digress. We can become indebted by borrowing, paying it back, being obligated to pay it back at least. But there's another sense in which we can become indebted. If we're given something, whether it's money or goods, property, whatever, for the purpose of conveying it to another. I'm traveling to Greenville weekly to lecture in the seminary. Many of you through camp and other connections have friends in our other church. Maybe you want to give a gift. You know somebody down there is in need. Hey, Pastor Kimbrough, here's $100. Give this to the whoever, Jones family there in the church in Greenville. Well, guess what? That $100 bill that's riding in my pocket is supposed to go somewhere. I'm indebted to that Mr. Jones in Greenville because I've been entrusted with that money from Mr. Smith up here. And I think it's in this sense that we should understand Paul's attitude here. Paul has been the recipient of precious cargo, if you will. He's been the beneficiary of this precious treasure, this inexhaustible, infinite treasure. 
And he understands himself to be indebted to everyone he meets to share this treasure. This is Paul's attitude. He has been entrusted with the gospel. He's been entrusted with good news of salvation. It's not his to hoard. It's not his to possess as if he were different than anybody else he would ever meet. Oh yes, Paul was different than a lot of people that he met. He was well educated, he was gifted. I have to come at a later point, I was reading one of the men this week that had about a sevenfold phrased sentence of all of Paul's disadvantages. I mean, he was bald, he was probably of short stature, he wasn't a good speaker, he had eye trouble, I think about three or four other things. He's just a crusty old guy, nobody would be interested to see. Kind of get on the other side of the street when he's walking by. But gifted remarkably in many ways. Not in the least bit selective in who he would speak to. Saw himself as indebted to all. He was entrusted with good news. He's bound. He's bound. Think about that. That's a word we still use frequently. Sometimes we don't really think of the depths of it. I'm bound to tell this. Paul must deliver it. I want to elaborate a little further here because it's a phrase I've used over the years that I still like. I remember talking in the early years and many in those early days and perhaps still truth today had come out of a more Arminian-oriented theological system and struggled at times with some of the ramifications of that partial understanding of the doctrines, the details of the doctrines of the gospel. And we used to talk about bondage theology and guilt theology and serving God out of guilt rather than gratitude. Well, I think there's a a lot to be said for that little summary and how understanding imputed righteousness is so helpful in liberating us to speak to serve, to witness, to testify out of gratitude instead of trying to work off guilt. You know, the preacher said, we're not witnessing enough, I better do it again. And I had someone that was actually visiting in an evening service that called me aside afterwards, said he really appreciated the message, but he wanted to challenge me or share something with me because he had just written a book, or read a book rather, by John Piper, and he was challenging what he called a debtor's ethic. And that we try and serve God out of gratitude. And I said, hmm, I'll, well, I'll read that and see. And I read it. And actually, it was, a, it was a cassette tape series and a big, heavy notebook with notes and these little square plastic things. Yeah, that's how long ago it was. I didn't disagree with the point Piper was making. Uh, I think it came down to semantics on gratitude because 
his point about a debtor's ethic is that we somehow, once it's, we're saved, we've got we to pay God back. Well, that's not at all my understanding and intention in using the word gratitude. But Paul did have, in a sense, his own debtor's ethic. Not that he was reluctant. Not that he felt constrained unwillingly to do something that he just assumed not do, but he had to. No, this is a heart that's overflowing with joy. That feels compelled, bound to share that good news with the Greeks and the barbarians, with the wise and the unwise. There's nobody that's more or less worthy to hear and receive that message than Paul. And Paul sees himself as a debtor to share the gospel. Let each of us examine our own hearts, examine our own lives and our experience. Is that one of our attitudes about this gospel? I have been entrusted with something of infinite worth. I'm the recipient of this infinite grace. I am bound to share this to one and all. I'm a debtor. Paul secondly says, I'm ready. Now you can, of course, and should attach this to Paul's statements in the previous verses that he's desired to come to Rome to minister there, to have fruit there as he's had fruit among other Gentiles. Uh, So he's ready to make that journey and minister in that city. But of course, the attitude that's displayed here is far broader and far greater than just Paul's desire to hold a mission in Rome, if you will. It's a further elaboration on Paul's state of mind. Not only does he see himself as under obligation, if you will, as indebted to, to spread the word, he's happy about it. The point Paul is making in this statement, I'm ready, is that he is eager to share the gospel. He doesn't just find it as an obligation that has to be done. Of course, we've highlighted this already. But the point is here that he's happy about it. He is excited about it. He's eager to come and do it. And here, one I was reading just paused, probably a mid to late 20th century writer, just commenting on how in so many ways these affirmations that Paul makes personally about his attitudes are contrary to the attitudes of the modern church. They expose in so many ways the difficulties that Christians struggle with in their sharing the Word, in their participation in evangelism. Can I make a suggestion here? I don't think this covers every base, as it were. It doesn't uh, 
answer every question. But can I suggest that there is frequently a comparison? Something perhaps we might try and even graph. A comparison between our understanding of the gospel and our eagerness to share it? I say that's not watertight. We believe that Arminians have some deficiencies in their understanding of the gospel, and yet sadly, one of the caricatures and frequently one of the things that might have a little little ring of truth to it is that Arminian churches are more evangelistic than Calvinistic churches. I had a dear friend years ago that was attending a, a Reformed church. It wasn't one of our churches. It was a Reformed Baptistic church in another state. He was at a church fellowship dinner, and there were several men gathered in conversation, and he was among them, and one of them was a dear friend of his, the reason he was visiting. And They were all talking about the doctrines of grace and excited about the theology and all their understanding and learning and lamenting, as it were, you know, their former days when they were blind and, you know, in those dispensational Arminian churches that didn't know they were Arminian and all of that. And this guy, I don't know what his mood was, his particular burden that day, but he just paused at the next point in the conversation where there was a pause and interjected a question. He said, how many of you were saved in a Calvinistic church? Nobody replied. Now, that's not to say that nobody has ever been saved under Calvinism. One of the things that kind of blew my doors in undergrad school was in a church or a church history course on Baptist history, and all the occasions of revival since the Reformation, but particularly in say the the last half of the centuries between the Reformation and now. And I see these men that were leaders in these great moves of God and seasons of tremendous evangelism, men like George Whitfield, men like Jonathan Edwards. Well, man, not only were none of these guys Baptists, none of them were what they're supposed to be, they were all Calvinists, and Calvinists don't preach the gospel. Well, like I said, that kind of blew me out of the water. I've kind of given you the exception to the rule I was suggesting, so now let me try and give you the rule. Don't ever let us put any reality to the caricature that Calvinists don't invite sinners to Christ. If I forget to quote it, which I hopefully won't, but when we come to Romans 9, which has so many of those really hard passages about God loving Jacob and hating Esau and those vessels of wrath and all that really difficult stuff about election and sovereignty, how does Romans 9 open? Anybody studied ahead? Paul said, I could wish myself accursed for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
Paul said he was so eager, he was so desirous of the conversion of his fellow Jews that he could wish himself damned if it would result in their conversion. And I remember hearing one preach on this years ago that just so smote my heart. Romans 9. And so you see that these doctrines that many look at as so harsh and they caricature them to make them apparently do something they don't do, that these doctrines are never a barrier to a passion for souls. You couldn't have much more passion for souls and a desire for people to be converted than Paul displays in the opening verses of Romans 9. Paul is ready. But I said, can I suggest a comparison between our understanding of the gospel and our willingness to share it? I've spent a lot more time dealing with the exceptions and the things we should avoid that I didn't intend on spending. But to come to it positively now. With a deeper understanding of the doctrines of the gospel, our hearts are overwhelmed. I've met many that have come into the doctrines of grace years after they've genuinely been converted. But it's such a liberating experience to understand imputed righteousness, to understand acceptance in the Beloved. And all of these related truths that there wasn't anything in me that made God choose me. He simply graciously from eternity chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that overwhelming realization is a spur rather than a barrier to spreading the word. Of trusting God. Of being able to look at Greek and barbarian. Wise and unwise. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody that has about three more graduate degrees than you have? Intimidating. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe there are ways in which you can have more understanding than all your teachers. When you know the bedrock truth of grace, of the need, and of the answer to the need for every sinner. It's when you come to understand, you know, I don't have to be an expert on all the cults in order to speak to a cultist and call them to Christ. I just got to tell them about Jesus. I just need to know the person and work of Christ pretty well and then be happy to share it. And then realize that maybe even the stuff you've never studied, when they start talking about their false religion, you said, well, of course that's wrong because it denies this and it contradicts this. And this is the gospel. Paul is ready. And what a change it is manifesting in him. 
What's your attitude toward the gospel? Are the people of God some exclusive club that you, of course, are invited to enter and a charter member of, and you're reluctant maybe to just have anybody come to that club? How the Jews had evolved in their self-righteousness. What about Saul of Tarsus, who had previously looked at the world that way, who came with the sight of the risen Christ to understand what God had been saying all along about the Messiah. And to look now at the gospel, to look at the people of God as a graciously called company of the undeserving. And then instead of being reluctant to speak to others about it, ready to tell everybody and anybody about it. Paul said, I am debtor. I'm ready. He also said, I am not ashamed. This affirmation really is what leads to his thesis statement. And so we'll flesh that out certainly more as we press on into that and into the epistle itself. But here again, just to pause with regard to Paul's attitudes toward the gospel. I'm not ashamed. This is in many ways a very revealing statement. There's an implication contained within it that others are ashamed of this message. There's an implication contained within it that the message itself is a message that's of such a nature, it's easy to be ashamed of it. It's in some ways a natural response to be ashamed of it. You can think in particular the context of the first century Jews. As Paul came to those synagogues and opened their scriptures, and from the Old Testament scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ, that the Messiah, must needs to have suffered and to have risen from the dead. And many of the Jews believed Many of the Gentiles that were the proselytes gathered into the synagogues, they couldn't be full members, but the Jews were happy they were there. It kind of made them feel pretty good about themselves. Look, the Gentiles were even listening and kind of wishing they could be us. And then Gentiles heard this word and knew this Messiah was for them too. And the Jews that believed not, we've been reading some of that in these historical portions of Acts the last few weeks. That news of a crucified Messiah, that just wasn't quite sitting right. It didn't quite fit with their view of themselves 
and their view of what God was supposed to do for and with them. And so it was easy to be ashamed of the message of Jesus. We may not have that context. I don't know of any of us of direct Jewish descent and a perverted expectation of our advancement over the Gentiles in an earthly kingdom. No millennial debates included in that statement. We can be ashamed of the gospel. We can be ashamed of it in some ways because in our modern culture and worldly culture, being a Christian, being converted, the impact that it has upon our lifestyle kind of different than everybody else. It's sad that that's getting a little bit outdated in the modern church. Even sometimes under the, the umbrella of grace being emphasized, that there's just not much space between the world's lifestyle and the Christian's lifestyle anymore. That's not the Christianity that's described and displayed for us in the New Testament. We can be ashamed of the gospel in that sense. Don't want to look different. And that's very real. But I think the context presents a reality that was very real for Paul as we've just described, but should also be true for us. There's an offensiveness about the message of grace. To tell sinners that they're alienated from God, that they're children of wrath, and then to add insult to injury to say, oh, and by the way, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't admit that and say, yeah, but I'm going to do better now. Yeah, you're right, I've been a bad person in some ways, but I can make up for that. You offend people when you say that. You offend unchurched, worldly people. You offend churched Self-righteous, unsaved people. Usually that's the crowd that grace offends more. Remember, it wasn't the Romans that were interested in getting rid of Jesus. It was the self-righteous Jewish religious people that wanted to get rid of Jesus. Paul says in the Galatians chapter 5 as he's worked through his argument about the necessity of circumcision that the Judaizers were presenting to the churches. We're willing to accept this Jesus stuff, but you still need the Jewish rituals. You still need to become like us in order to be real kingdom people. 
And Paul just unloads against that and preaches grace. But he speaks about that not preaching circumcision, else the offense of the cross is ceased. There's something offensive about grace. It's only offensive to the self-righteous. It's only offensive to those who don't think they need grace. But when the heart is smitten by the Spirit of God and the sinner understands his hopeless and helpless condition, the message of grace, the preaching of the cross is wonderful. There's no offense in it. Because how could offense be taken? There's nothing in me to boast about. What did we sing today? All undone by sin and evil. Child of condemnation, I. When one understands that, then the Gospel is good news. And Paul, Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law blameless, finally sees the offense of the cross taken away. And Paul can say to the Romans, to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the unwise, I am not ashamed of this message. It can and does offend the flesh, but I'm not ashamed of it. Here's something to boast in. Not me. Not my religion. Not my brains. No, I'm boasting in somebody else. Somebody that's worthy. And it's the crucified Jesus. These were Paul's attitudes toward the gospel he was going to share with the Romans. I'm a debtor. I'm ready. And I'm not ashamed. Friends, that should be the attitude of every one of us. May God help us to have it. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and pray that you might help us even beyond giving our assent to the things we've heard and considered today, to examine our own hearts. To even think a little about our pursuits of spreading the good news. And see how much we must indeed be debtors and be ready and not be ashamed. Lord, give us such grace and help to increase in these things. 
And we pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.